You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 12 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson. Today's topic is about the contractor provisions for payroll tax purposes. Whether somebody is a contractor or an employee is a huge issue and can cause a lot of grief if you get it wrong. Hence this episode just on contractor provisions. I'm talking to Andrew Fricot and Anka Dar of Revenue New South Wales. You might remember Andrew and Anka from episode one where they gave us a good overview of payroll tax. While Andrew and Anchor specifically talk about New South Wales, the other states and territories in Australia use the same six general exemptions, with the exception of Western Australia, as Andrew and Anchor will explain later. So even if you're outside of New South Wales, hopefully you will still find this episode helpful. I started by asking Andrew and Anchor what the contractor provisions are all about. Here's their answer. It's all about working out whether the payments made to so-called contractors should be in or should be out. So the first part of today's discussion is really going to be looking at that employee versus contractor. When do we need to go down that track? When can someone with an ABN be seen more like a common law employee and not an independent business? Or when are they definitely going to be seen as an independent business and then they're able to go down the contractor path and see hey, is there an exemption available for us? And this is actually outlined by the courts. The courts use known as the totality relationship, where they look at the relationship between the principal business and that individual with an ABN. And this is always done when it's the individual as a sole trader. If the contractor, if that person or company providing that service is a trust, partnership or incorporated, they're automatically given the contractor status. There's a corporate bail. They'll never be seen as a common law employee. They can still be deemed under our provisions to be deemed employee for payroll tax purposes, but they'll never be seen as a common law employee because they're an entity on their own. But when it comes to sole traders, and that's probably the grayest area, this is where businesses sometimes get it wrong. They take every contractor and go, oh, wait a minute, uh, Revenue New South Wales might see them as an employee. That's not true. It's only that sole trader that you have to do that totality relationship about. So the totality relationship is exactly that. It, it's a totality of many factors when considering whether this contractor is to be seen as an employee or an, a truly an independent business. The totality relationship is trying to identify this sole trader, this one person with an ABN, are they providing services to your business much like an employee would, or are they genuinely running their own business? Payroll tax captures labor. So if this individual is predominantly just providing you with labor without running an own, their own business, without having overheads, without having commercial risk, without having the ability to delegate, without having an actual terms of the contract, without you know bringing their own tools and materials, it's no different to what an employee would be. You know, I go into work, Revenue New South Wales provides me with my desk, my computer, all the stationery I need, the facilities I need to do my job. You know, if I can't do it, they allocate that role to someone else. 
I'm not running a business, but just because I have an ABN doesn't make me an independent business. And that's what this is looking at. So we review things like control, what, where, how, when, you know, and it's, it's not the level of control. It's the ability to control because that service provider may be specialized and you may not have the, you know, the knowledge of the understanding of what their role is. So you can't tell them, are you doing this wrong or whatever, but your ability to tell them to, to maneuver where they do it, how they do it. Oh, I need you in at nine o'clock. I need you to go this site, that site, you know, that kind of control is what we look at first. How are they directed to do their work? You know, are they being provided, is that person being provided a training manual? Are they offered training in how to do what they need to do? Or are they just coming to the job with the expertise already, which is what you would typically expect of a contractor? So a lot of these principles around totality of relationship look at generic or generalized characteristics of what is typically expected of a contractor as opposed to how an employee is engaged. The next thing we, we look at is the contract itself. Is there a written contract? Is there a verbal contract? What are the terms of the contract? Because sometimes a contract has to actually say, you know, this is for service or off service. You know, it's for an employee or an actual business to business relationship. Are there any restrictions? Are you excluding them from providing their service to anyone? Are you utilizing them to a point where they can't provide their services to anyone? So we review the contract itself. The next point after that is integration. How closely is this service provider linked to your core service of your business? Do they wear your uniform, have your logo? Are they representing your business? Or can an independent party see that they're representing their own business, providing a service to your business? So integration is quite important as well. How integral to your business is the service being provided? You know, are they doing the same thing as your employees, same or similar services? So, for example, if you're a building business and you have carpenters, well, is this contractor you're engaging doing exactly the same thing as your employees? The next thing is risk, commercial risk. You know, every independent business goes through this. They quote incorrectly. They don't charge you correctly. They can make a loss on a job. But as an employee, you can't. You're paid by the hour or the task or however. There's no overheads involved. Does this sole trader, this individual with an ABN, do they have commercial risk? Do they have their own licenses, their own insurances? I'm covered under Revenue New South Wales insurances. I don't need to go out there. I don't need to get my own workers' comp or things like that. I can get additional insurance, yes, for income protection and things like that. But if I hurt myself or something happens or I break some sort of equipment or anything like that, Revenue New South Wales is responsible for that. If I provide the wrong information, although today it's all great information, but if I provide any wrong information, I'm not personally liable. But under you know a business-to-business relationship, you require that other business that individual with an ABN to be responsible for any task they, they provide you. So if they're required to build a wall and tomorrow the wall falls over, well, you're going to chase up that contractor to make sure, you know, that work was provided correctly and what was the problem with it for them to rectify it, you know, at their own cost, not charging you extra. So risk is also a very important factor. 
let's say, for example, the contract was to patch up a hole that's in the wall as a, a plasterer. And let's say the person who was to do this was an employee. And you ask them to go and patch up that hole in the wall. But for the life of them, they tried their very best to patch up the hole in the wall and it was their job to patch up holes, but they couldn't do it, you would still have to pay them for trying. Whereas if you're engaging a contractor and they try, but they can't succeed, they suffer that risk of not being paid. So you're not going to pay a contractor who can't achieve the result. The next couple of things is entitlements. Most employees have certain type of entitlements, leave, be it sick leave, long service leave, annual leave, things like that, superannuation, things like that. These are entitlements that typically employees get. So if we identify that you're providing the same or similar entitlements to contractors, so these are independent businesses, we'd ask why. Because they're supposed to take care of their own entitlements, not the business provided to them. Something else is, in terms of providing it to them, is tools and materials. It kind of goes with risk, you know. Revenue New South Wales provides me with tools and materials. If you're providing that to a contractor, well, then predominantly they're just providing you with labour, much like what an employee would be. So we look at the amount of tools and materials that the contractor or the service provider, and remember, this is only when it's an individual with an ABN. We're solely talking about sole traders right now, right, is providing in, in that contract. And if they don't have substantial tools and materials and they work out of your premises and things like that, you can see how, how now the picture is looking a bit more clearer. Yes, they have an ABN. Yes, they invoice you. But they're operating much like an employee would be. And that's where the totality relationship comes down into. Okay, with everything that we're talking about, it's not one size fits all. We're, so you've got to look at the totality of everything. So some things will have a strong indicator. Other things will be a bit lighter on. And therefore, just because you're lighter on in one area, that doesn't mean, up. Oh, obviously, we're going to go one way or the other. Now, to move on to that topic of delegation, typically employees cannot delegate to someone outside. But when you're dealing with a contractor, you ultimately are looking for a result. And the contractor, at the end of the day, is liable for that result. But how they achieve that result is up to them. And they can get someone from outside or someone from within their own business to come and do that work. A contractor can delegate to someone outside, known as subcontracting, whereas when we're dealing with employees, they cannot typically delegate to someone outside, but only someone internally. When you're looking at delegation as well, we also look at in terms of payment. Is that contractor, when they've required someone else to do the job, are they making the payment? Or is your business required to do that? Because delegation is literally you're organising someone else to do that work and you're remunerating them for it. All these um, factors that we're considering for totality of relationship are not definitive. And it's not going to be the same in every industry. And this is what makes the whole topic of contractors very great. You need to look at it as a whole. So are these the six general provisions no, now? No. no, this is the totality of the relationship. This I see, so this is just the first? No, 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 this is not even a provision. Ah, really? This is what you need to do as the first step when you're reviewing sole traders before you can say that individual with an ABN is a contractor and now will be looked 
under the contractor provisions as if there's an exemption. Oh. Without this, you can't automatically go, every sole trader is a contractor. Okay. So with sole traders, we first look at the totality of relationship. Yes. And if that fails, they are, they are an employee and we don't even have to look at the exemptions. And if they pass the totality of relationship, then we look at the exemptions. Exemptions, correct. And this totality of relationship doesn't apply to other business forms like propriety, limited, or trust. For those, we only look at the exemptions. Yes. So the first step is you have to separate your contractors. Sole traders in one basket, incorporated partnerships, trusts in another basket. You review your sole traders first and see through the total relationship if they're going to be seen as a common law employee or as an independent business. If they're an independent business, then you move them across to the other, the other basket, basket with all the other independent businesses that are mm -hmm. contractors. And then you would look at that basket and go, well, they're still liable, but is there an exemption available? Mm -hmm. Well, everyone left in the first basket, sorry, you guys are employees, There are some employee-based exemptions, and we've discussed that in, in another podcast, where, you know, maternity leave, rural fire service, defense force, things like that, that are available. But typically, they would be, whatever payments you make to them, less GST, would be liable for payroll tax. If you were to find a, a sole trader and automatically classify them as a contractor, But in reality, upon reviewing totality of the relationship that the person is should have been classified as an employee, now, if that person was really to be seen as a casual employee, and let's say they only did one day a week, you might get caught out thinking, well, for 52 times of the year, it's less than 90 days, therefore that contract is out. But you've missed the point that they're actually meant to be seen as an employee at common law. And therefore, the contractor provisions, the exemptions that are available do not apply to this worker. They should be in that bundle of employees, not into the contractor basket. Some of these things that we're talking about in regards to total relationship do not just apply to payroll tax. You can apply it to principles to do with superannuation, work agreements, and to, to payroll tax. Some of these principles are somewhat universal and it's about the employer-employee or master-servant, as it was known from years and years back, whether that relationship is what, what is existing here. Because when another authority, such as WorkCover or our office, Revenue New South Wales, knocks on the door, they might be looking at the situation, applying the totality relationship, and then they may be caught out. So it's important to really get some of these things nutted out and, and worked out and be sure of your statuses. Mm -hmm. What you're going to find is Safe Work New South Wales, Revenue New South Wales, Australian Tax Office, we all have contractor provisions. We all review contractors. But the totality relationship is actually driven by the courts. The courts define how we review the contractor, the totality relationship. And all of those areas are very common They're not exactly the same, but they're very common. So if we, by any chance, uh, deem that sole trader to be reviewed as under common law employee, well, chances are the ATO is going to do the same. And chances are Safe Work New South Wales is going to do the same. 
the status of, of an individual providing you with a service may change. They may be a contractor one year, could be seen as a common law employee next year, could be seen as another contractor, but not meet any of our exemptions. It can change. So it should be a business practice to review their contractors, sole traders first, under total relationship each year, and then all contractors for the exemptions each year. In New South Wales, we have seven exemptions, and they can go up to nine exemptions between different states. Here's something important that Anchor said in episode one. In terms of what is harmonized with contractors, we've got the six general exemptions, which, except for WA, every state and territory applies. The three specific ones, now that does vary between the states a little bit. But the six general ones, except for WA, is the same in every other state and territory. Is it six? I thought it was seven. There was seven. That's like there is three specific. We reduced that to one. So we've got seven, but there's still six general and the extra one we have. Oh, and then okay. there's other states have the three still. So they've got nine. We have seven. They have nine. But oh, the okay. six main ones are the same. Oh, okay. Mm. So again, that's a little differences, you know. Mm. That differs between states, but mm. but that's what I'm trying to imply here is the six general ones are applied across. And and they're majority of the ones that most businesses apply. It's the the specific ones are really towards an industry or a certain type of contractor. While the six general ones are are type the business that contractor's providing. Back to episode twelve. but we're predominantly going to talk about the seven. We have uh, one specific one, which is called the owner-driver, and then we have six general. We'll go through all of them, but the six general are 90-day exemption, 180-day exemption, engaging others, labors and silvery, services not only required, and services rendered to the public. The only specific exemption that we have in New South Wales now since 1 January 2016 is owner-driver's. And this is to do with where the contractor's main business is their vehicle. They're conveying goods from point A to point B. And so, therefore, there's a significant capital investment in that vehicle that they have sourced and it's not being provided typically by the business that's engaged them. So if the contract is primarily to deliver goods or convey goods from point A to point B and they are supplying their own truck, van, motorcycle, aeroplane, whatever you want to call it, but bicycles don't meet the cut because we have had cases in the past where, you know, it has been reviewed that bringing your own bicycle and doing those types of deliveries don't meet the criteria. But but that's interesting because that becomes more and more common, you know, with Fudora and mere delivery, delivery services, delivery, delivery yeah. There was, a, there was a court case that, that determined this. Again, we follow the leads of the court. Yeah. So the court case determined that there wasn't enough uh, overheads by using a bicycle for them to say they were providing their own tools and materials as such. Because, again, what are they doing? They're predominantly just providing labour. Mm. And the case to, to note here is Holtz versus Vabu, where um, a courier business, which was branding its, its riders, directing them where to go, be there by a certain time, 
all of these types of criteria demonstrated a high level of control over the contractor. And at the end of the day, when, because this was not a case for payroll tax, but it's a, a well-known case which highlights you know, whether these bicycle couriers were to be seen as independent contractors or not. But just owning your bike in that situation wasn't enough. They were branded. They were told where to go and, 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 and so forth. So at the end of the day, you really need to consider the whole basket. What's the case title? Hollis versus Barbu. It's the crisis couriers case. And the other thing to remember is you only need one of the exemptions. Once you meet one of the exemptions in one financial year, you can exempt that whole contract for that year. So it's not like, oh, I've got to, I've got to get a series of them or they have to apply for the full period. You just have to meet one exemption. So, you know, focus on the exemptions that are easily obtained. Things like 90 days, you know. It is that service provider providing services to your business, that contractor providing services to your business for 90 days or less within a financial year. And if that's the case, there's an exemption just for that. Now, most people always ask, what categorizes as a day's work? You know, is it seven hours? Is it eight hours? For payroll tax purposes, any work conducted in a day categorizes as a as a day's work it could be as simple as for a salesperson to make a call sales call and then not do anything for the rest of the day that could be a day's work or they could be chasing down sales lead for 8 10 12 hours you know that will categorize for a day's work so however this could make things seem a bit impractical and a bit hard but there is a revenue ruling on our that can be accessed via the website and also the payrolltax.gov.au website, which is PTA035, which allows for what's called the replacement method, whereby you will look at a specific industry, the typical rate per hour for that industry. Then you look at the total payments to that contractor for that financial year. And then you work backwards from there to calculate how many days that would be given the industry standard. Because we do understand and appreciate that it can be hard for contractors or for businesses who engage contractors to keep track of all of these things. If you're able to quantify how many days this contractor was directly involved in, in the service they provide to your business and was it 90 days or less, you're able to accept them. So this exemption being the 90-day work test really is a matter of fact. How many days in a financial year did they work for you? It doesn't matter whether they're doing same or similar services as your own employees. So it could be seen as additional labour. It's not necessary for them to be doing something which is not highly integrated into your business. So this one does allow for a high level of integration in terms of the type of work but we're restricting it in terms of its level of integration to being a maximum of 90 days. It could be spread out across a whole financial year. And the start of a new financial year starts the clock again. So you could have 60 days on one side of the financial year and then 60 days on another side of the financial year and then both those contracts being exempted because it's less than 90 days in each situation. But let's say you really like that contract and you want to extend that contract for another 60 days again, all of a sudden on that 90th day from day one of that financial year, all those contractor payments to that worker 
would become liable. So, for example, if you're an IT business and you have IT workers as employees, but you score a big job and then you want to take on more contractors who are IT specialists in a special programming language. So you take on five extra workers as contractors, but you give them a 60-day contract. But as soon as they exceed that 90 days from day one of that financial year that they were engaged, those contracts become liable for your payroll tax. There's, there's another exemption we have, and this is commonly, there's a, there's a big confusion here, and this is uh, services ordinary required, but for less than 180 days. Now, a lot of businesses, what they do is they look at the 90 days and go, hang on, my contractor provided me services for 100, 120 days. But wait, there's another exemption we have, or Revenue New South Wales has, that's the 180 days. We'll just apply that. The main difference between the two, the 90 days and the 180 days is, the 90 days looks at the contractor. How many days that that particular contractor provide services to my business, 90 days or less, then you're able to exempt. The 180 days does not look at that one contractor. It actually looks at the business, your business, and looks at how many days does your business require that type of service. So when we're looking at that business, how many days it requires that service, we're not just looking at that contractor. We're looking at all the contractors that provide that service, as well as all employees of the business that provide that service. Because now we have a much better understanding of that type of service and how long your business requires it. Again, the 180 days does not have to be sequential. It doesn't have to be you know, every week or so on and so forth. This exemption typically used to be for seasonal work where that business, no matter what happened, could only utilize that service for four months, five months of the year. You know, all other times of the year, it just wasn't possible. So does it often apply in agriculture, farming? Typically, it used to be for fruit pickers, you know, ski uh, lift operators and things like that, where, you know, six, seven months of the year, you know, you could stand there with your skis, but... You know, it's a beautiful sunny day, it's 30 degrees, what are you going to do? Or, you know, you can stand under the tree, but there's no fruit, you know, you can't pick it. But it has evolved from there. Now, as long as you're able to substantiate, and at the end of the day, substantiation is the key, that your business only requires that type of service for less than 180 days, and it's a core business service, then you're able to apply it. Recently, things like bookkeepers, who only work two days a week for your business are able to apply this. But again, you need to be able to show that that service that the bookkeeper does, you know, that's only required for less than 180 days. There aren't employees who are doing that or similar services throughout the year. And then this is just somebody who, who at the end of the day prepares the reports or makes the payments. It's their role and they do it solely for that period of time. So as long as you can substantiate. And at the end of the day, it's, it's the keys here, substantiation. If you're applying for an exemption, you must have substantiation behind it. So if that bookkeeper is two days a week, you know, what's that, 104 days a year, then 
No other employee, other contractors, other people are not providing same or similar service. For example, a university lecturer. The university might say the lecturer only came in for 70 days in the year, but the university lecturer might actually claim home office expenses, travel costs, etc., for a lot more days than just those those 70. Do you do you match that? Or we you don't go into we the do have study? access with ATO information, but to use your example, it'd be very tough for that university to get an exemption under the 180 days simply because they'll have multiple lecturers running throughout. So we're looking at that service, not that individual. Yes, so but they could. You, yes, but jumping back to the 90-day rule, oh, okay. so they probably would get away with the 90-day rule. Yeah, we, we look at that type of service. We actually look at, is it feasible for them to just to provide that service one day? So if you look at the example of a university lecturer, they need to prepare the lectures. They need to, if, if they need to go to facility meetings, you know, um, lecturer meetings, study groups, mm -hmm. they need to evaluate the assessments, things like that. So it's not just the day they're in front of the class doing that. So you have access to the uh, individual tax returns, but you tend to more just apply common, common sense. Yes. It all comes down to at the end of the day, we do have access to that information because we do have a, a understanding with the ATO where we do data match and we can make the requests to the ATO. But if you can use a common sense approach to it, it's faster and more then, efficient. then you're not going to go there. It's only, you know, when, when again, it's all risk analysis. Mm. You know, if it's like a hundred bucks, no one's going to chase you for a hundred dollars as such. Mm. But, you know, if, if it's a hundred thousand, well, then it needs a, a lot greater analysis to see exactly what is happening here. Yeah. It really needs to be emphasized that the 180-day test is is really about the type of service being provided. Now, if you're a, a, a building business, you might not require the services of landscapers for more than, let's say, 160 days of the year because not every job requires landscaping. Therefore, on multiple days throughout the year, different contractors may be engaged as landscapers. However, you will be in a situation where you can exempt those contractors who are landscapers because you don't need that type of service. Let's say you had a contractor who was a carpenter and let's say you had them for 120 days. So you fall foul of the 90-day rule, but then you go, oh, well, let's apply the 180-day rule. But because that exemption won't work because you need that type of service, at that same or similar service all throughout the year, you will not be able to apply that for the, the contractor. And we'd always recommend that a business that's reviewing their contractors always refer to our revenue rulings and PTA 020, so uh, number 20, is a good indicator, a good guide, which um, gives an explanation of how Revenue New South Wales looks at the contracting situation for the 180-day exemption. The next exemption that we're going to review is contractor engaging others. Now, this literally means that there was more than one individual directly involved in fulfilling that contract. And that can be an apprentice. Can be an apprentice, can be an employee, can be you do part of the contract, you subcontract another part. To, to someone else to do. And is there a limit of percentage? Like, can I have to subcontract at least 10% or can I only just subcontract 1%? There, there's no limit, but again, it's, it's reviewed on a case-by-case -case scenario. If it's seen that you're only doing this to gain the exemption, 
well then mm. you're not going to be granted it but if it's a genuine part of the contract and it just happens to be a very small part well still it's part of the contract and you're requiring someone else to fulfill it mm. then you're able to gain it so there's no actual percentage okay but here there's a couple of things when we look at this right partners of a partnership you can't just be the partners it has to be a partner and an employee a partner or a subcontractor employees themselves or completely subcontracted out to multiple people so they can't kind of be of equal weight or yeah. of e equal standing it has to be a, a no, boss it, and if, if, it's, if, it, if, the, if the contract is a director like is a company it can be the directors but it's just uh, for for reasons that as a partner you're not seen as an employee but as a director you are seen as an employee and we're looking at employees of the business fulfilling the contract the the second thing here to remember is it's directly involved in the contract it's not i'm doing the work and then i have a bookkeeper or an admin person in the office that looks after my things that's not me engaging labor it has to be someone who's directly involved in fulfilling not i have staff and that's good enough no it has to be directly involved in engaging in in fulfilling that contract when an auditor is reviewing your situation they're going to look at your contractors and say it's quite probable for this type of work that it does require two or more people an example could be plasterboard fitters or or window installers you know the type of work would that would typically require two or more people to fulfill that contract they don't need to work simultaneously it could be a situation where under the one contract there are multiple layers involved first part of the contract could be for someone to come and say lay a pipe right that's ultimately what you need done so the first day someone comes and digs a trench the next day someone else comes who may be a plumber and lays the pipe and then the next day someone comes and fills it in with concrete so you have three types of of labor skills involved there to complete the one contract and therefore that also would meet the criteria here substantiation is key is it probable that this is a type of contract that would require more than one person and the type of evidence and which sometimes is hard to collect because now you're relying on the contractor to provide evidence to you to say that there were two or more people some things that could be done include keeping site records or sign in sheets of those contractors to indicate that there were more than one person if the invoices indicate that there is multiple labor associated this is another good indicator but if especially like in the building construction industry there are site records that people need to sign in before they enter a workplace and every worker needs to do that in order to get the right clearance in order to do their job and these are good indicators that could be supplied in an audit situation so that we can have some form of evidence to demonstrate that this contractor engages others The key thing to remember here substantiation and the onus of proof is on the taxpayer getting your contractors to itemize their invoices you know later on we'll talk about the labor component to the materials component if that's itemized in the invoice as well that's going to help you along the way as well and if they identify if there were multiple people required to do that on the invoice that's always a, a good tool as well revenue ruling for engaging others is PTA 023 The next exemption to, that we want to consider is whether labor labor is ancillary to the supply of materials or equipment. Is the labor the um, a minute aspect of the contract? 
because it's more about the supply of goods or, or some equipment. If you were to have a job which required a crane, it's more about the crane rather than the person who's pulling the levers and then steering the load at the bottom. And that's a perfect example where sometimes two or more of exemptions could apply because in this example for the crane, we're dealing with this heavy machinery. So it's all about really the labor being ancillary here, but it also has two or more people engaged in the one contract. So you might have a situation where more than one exemption could apply. The, the key thing here is to remember peril tax captures labor as that, that's what's liable for peril tax. Right, so at any point, if you're able to demonstrate the purpose of the contract was not for labor, it was for materials or good, you're able to exempt that. And again, how would we do this? Invoices. Itemize your invoice. You see, you're able to say, I'm buying the air conditioning, installation was part of it. But if you bought the air conditioning unit from one place and you got someone else to install it from somewhere else, that's two separate contracts where you bought the, uh, the air conditioning unit, fine, it's materials, goods, but when you got the labor just for insulation out of somewhere else, now that's gonna be seen liable until you can meet one of the other exemptions. Well, that takes us to the next exemption, which is services not only required and performed for the public generally. So where before, uh, under the 180 days, that was services ordinary required, now we're looking at the other side. These are services not, that are not ordinary required. And at the same time, the contractor provides those type of services to the public. So these are the ad hoc services to the business. The, the light goes out and you get an electrician in to come and fix it. Chances are that same electrician will be providing same or similar services to other businesses. They are not just providing that service to your business. And that's the key. When you review this on a year-by-year -year basis, yes, when you started using that electrician, it used to be one light out, two lights out, five lights out. Then as your business grew, the electrician might have to come back once a week. Next year, they came back three times a week. And then suddenly, they're there for you all the time, fixing all the electrical problems you may have and things like that. So where... In one year, you might have been able to substantiate it and show that they provided their services to the public and it was a non-correlated service. But another year, due to the level of how often you use them, the integration into your business, now it's no longer a non-correlated service. And they don't have the ability now because of the workload you're giving them to actually provide those services to the public. And there's a revenue ruling around that, PTA 022. That aspect of totality of the relationship is feeding back into this with that level of integration, as Anka mentioned. So how much is this job that's being done, is it part of your core business services? Is it a same or similar to service to what you already provide? So as, and I think one of the key words there is ad hoc. You don't ordinarily need this type of service. It's like a bank engaging an interior decorator. If the necessity of that worker became such that they had no time to work for anyone else, you were no longer going to be able to claim this exemption. That, that leads us now to our final and last... General e exemption. Exemption that's available. And that's um, services rendered to the public. Here, if you're, if you're not able to gain any of our other exemptions and you genuinely believe that the contractor 
provide same or similar services that they're providing to your business, but they also provide it to other businesses, not that they're just available to provide it to other businesses, that they do provide it to other businesses. You can ask the office to review that because we have access to ATO, other data, other, other government agencies where we can review their returns to them and see, hang on, if you're paying them $40,000 a year, are they getting other income from other places? But there's a couple of things here. It's not an automatic, from now on, I'm just going to get Revenue New South Wales to review all my contractors. I don't need to do anything. It's not, it's not as simple as that. When you do request us to do this, we will ask you, please, please advise us what information, what research have you already conducted to show that they didn't meet any of the other exemptions? So can you show us what invoices have you done? What ledgers have you kept? What's the terms of the contract? What researches have you done on them? My favorite, Google. Have you done a Google? Have you seen if they advertise? How did you acquire them? Was it through word of mouth? How often do they work for you? Revenue ruling PTA 021 talks about you can apply this exemption yourself as long as you're able to establish that that contractor had two or more principles, your business as well as some other business, and on average did not work more than 10 days a month for your business. So that means for one month, they might have done 18 days. Another month, they might have done three days. Next month, they've done eight days. Next month, they've done 12 days. But on average, for that financial year, and it only includes the months they are actually providing services to your business that you need to calculate, they didn't work for you for greater than 10 days, you can apply this automatically. But you still need that original premise where you need to identify they have two or more principles. Including the business plus somebody else. Yeah. Or you can show two, two other businesses. That, that's even great. You know? But yes, the minimum is your business as well as some other business. And at the same time, working for your business no greater than on average 10 that's days a month. month. You take a logical approach to analyzing your contractors. Keep a schedule of the contractor and how many days you engage them throughout the year. Is it likely that they are available to work for anyone else? Because if you're engaging them all the time, you're not leaving them any time to work for anyone else. Doing those searches using the search engines and, and so forth, because if they are truly in business and, and providing their services to the public generally, what are they going to typically do? Advertise. You know, another way that may be an indicator to um, to your business to know whether someone is performing services for the public at large is laying out the invoices. This and like I said, this is just an indicator. Oh yeah, that's a good trick. Yeah. Lay out the invoices of that financial year and check from invo and from one date to the end date of the financial year. Are the invoices all sequential? If they're sporadic, so it's going from invoice one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and so forth. It's indicating that they're not working for anyone else. But if it's going invoice 1, 2, 5, 10, 11, 12, 20, it's showing that they, where are the invoices in between? They are performing services to the public at large. So these are indicators, though. You can't solely go, I have these invoices, they're, they're four invoices apart, and that's it. Just that by itself is not enough for substantiation. Yeah, you also need to look at the hours per month. Yeah, and look at, look at anything you can to substantiate in this circumstance.
if we come to the point now that none of the exemptions apply, you can't see one that fits, we're going to see this as a relevant contract. Right? Some people call these provisions the relevant contractor provisions because it's now we're seeing that this contract is relevant for payroll tax and we're going to include those payments now as liable. But to what degree do we include it as liable? So the full amount that's paid to the contractor, less the GST, because we're not taxing a tax, you can take away any approved deduction. Now, the revenue ruling PTA 018 gives guidelines to the taxpayer to know how much different industries can have a specific deduction because that deduction will account for those miscellaneous things that the contractor might bring to the job, which deducts the value of the labour, such as um, if you're dealing with a carpenter, it's a 25% deduction that's allowed because we're assuming they're bringing their timber and so forth to the job. Whereas if we're dealing with a, a computer programmer, an architect or an engineer, there's only a 5% deduction that's allowed. Okay, so there are lists that list a standard deduction for each Correct. industry. Under that revenue ruling PTA 018, it clearly identifies those different industries and then it provides for that um, relevant deduction that can be applied. If, if your industry is not listed there, don't worry because you can contact the office and we can review it on a case-by-case -case scenario as well. We can't itemize every industry. So predominantly what you'll find is, you know, building industry that we really look at a lot of tools, equipment, materials, things like that. And then, you know, the IT is, is, is growing, so we've itemized that a little bit. But, you know, you could be a, a doctor or something, and then, you know, you might provide tools and equipment there. We may need to review that, but I don't think doctor is listed in, in one of those in, in, in our revenue ruling as it stands. But just to summarize what the contractor exemptions are, the starting point, all contractors are liable, right? You have to meet one of our seven exemptions. And not just meet it, you have to keep records somehow substantiated. You don't need to do that when you're filling in your lodgements or anything like that. Substantiation is only required if and when you're audited to make sure you've made decisions according to the legislation. The instances where you won't be able to substantiate is when you have that one-person business predominantly working for you throughout the year, does not have employees, does not provide services to anyone else. That's where we don't have an exemption for that kind of a person, and that's what a relevant contract's really trying to capture at the end of the day. So that, that's the contractor provisions. In terms of the other provision that's out there is the employment agency provisions. Now, these are the employment agency contractor provisions. They have the word contract in them. And a lot of people sometimes use the contractor provisions, the relevant contractor provisions, and apply them to the employment agency provisions as well. That's incorrect. Okay, so the employment agency provisions are actually a complete separate topic. It's a different beast on its own. <laughs> okay. okay. The employment agency provisions don't have any of the exemptions that the relevant contractor provisions have. There, what we're trying to identify is who is the liable party for payroll tax, not how can you exempt that payment for payroll tax. The two basic types of employment agency contracts are placement contracts and labor hire. 
Placement is literally you go to an agent and they find that employee for you, place that employee in your workforce and you're responsible for that employee. So you're responsible for that employee's in terms of super, wages, uh, leave, entitlements, payroll tax. That's all on the business now. The agent, they just get their fee and, and they wipe their hands clean of, of that interaction. The labor hire contract is where you go to an agent and, and go to them and say, I need this type of person to provide this type of service for this type of period. You know, So they're hiring someone's labor on hiring to you, right? And the agent is still responsible for that service provider. Your only requirement as the taxpayer is you make sure you make the payments to the agent and the agent then takes care of whatever requirements are to that service provider, including the liability for payroll tax. Now the liability for payroll tax rests with the agent, not with the business itself that's taking on. The reason for that is we see the agent as the employer, the service provider, and it can be a company, it can be a trust, it can be an individual, it can be a partnership, as the employee and the payment from the agent to that service provider that is what's being taxed for payroll tax not the payment from the business to the agent because that includes the agency fees in it as well the only time you're able to exempt this is when the end user the client themselves would be exempt from payroll tax the reason for that well, if they were exempt from payroll tax, if they had gotten out, gone out there and acquired an employee or someone like that by themselves, that employee would have been exempt or payments made to that employee would have been exempt as well. So we pass on that exemption to the agency then as long as they have an approved declaration, declaration form signed by the end user, by the client to say, we were able to gain an exemption from payroll tax and then you're able to demonstrate the payments as the agent, the payments made to that service provider. So to summarize it in a very simplistic way, for a placement, I as the business are liable for payroll tax for that employee, whereas if I get labor hire, I don't pay payroll tax on that, but the agency who employs this worker will. Yes, exactly. And, and there are no contractor exemptions available so you can't use the 90 days 180 days engaging others labors ancillary all of those yeah so whenever you're dealing with this on hire relationship whatever's being paid to that service provider is liable the agency themselves may engage contractors in their own right like they might get a hr recruitment officer who comes in as a contractor yeah the contractor provisions may apply to the agency for those contractors. But when we're dealing with these on-hire relationships, that tri-party relationship, it's the amounts that are paid to that service provider which are going to be captured. Sometimes there are situations where an agent may not be able to source a worker. So they may refer to another agency and then that agency might refer to another agency. This is referred to as a chain of on-hire. And in these circumstances, typically, under our revenue rulings to do with employment agencies, we will go for the agency which is closest to the end user client as the liable party. But the legislation does say that any party who is part of that chain could be subject 
to payroll tax in that scenario, but the typical standing is the agency closest to the end user client, should they be liable, um, have a be engaging, have wages above the $750,000 threshold, which is the 2017-18 tax year threshold, if they're above that level, they're going to be the liable party for payroll tax. And, and when you're reviewing this, the revenue rulings on hand are PTA 26 version 2, 27, and 28. So again, there's a lot of information out there to assist you in how to apply this, all these provisions. So these are the contractor provisions which ultimately need to be considered by a business that takes on contractors, whether those payments should be included or they should be excluded based on the exemptions that are available. But first and foremost, it's always important to determine whether we're dealing with a sole trader who may be seen as an employee at common law or if they can be seen as a contractor. The only time you can jump to the contractor provisions and the exemptions is if we can determine that these are legitimate contractors and sometimes uh, the sole traders can be found as, as a legitimate contractor, but definitely when we're dealing with corporations, trust and partnerships, we're dealing with contractors and they may be privy to the, the exemptions, but you always need to be able to substantiate and review their status on a financial year. And that's the wrap up of the contractor provisions for payroll tax. Welcome back. So these were the contractor provisions for payroll tax. What had been completely new to me is that sole traders go through a totality of relationship test before we can even think about looking into an exemption. In the next episode, episode 13, Jane Bruno will tell us whether and when the Australian spouse of a US citizen or green card holder is subject to US tax. Until then, Thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.